On this show, we discuss crimes that are often graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Today, we're going to talk about kids. The fun games they like to play, how exciting and rewarding it is to watch them grow and develop into mature, loving adults. No, no we're not. Today, we're going to talk about kids that kill. And there's enough of them that this is part one of two. Welcome to Kids You Shouldn't Turn Your Back On. I'm your host, Paulette, and this is Crime Biscuit. start out with an apology. I recently had another podcast request a mid-Crime Biscuit spot for advertising their podcast. I neglected to realize how jarring it would be for the listener, so I made sure for this episode to put in a little pause, a few seconds of music to warn you, and I'm going to go back and add it into the previous five episodes so that anyone in the future that discovers the joy of Crime Biscuit will not be subjected to the same surprise that you were. That's it. Apology over. No more small talk. We are going to dive in head first. Hold on to your biscuits. These kids are scary. First up is Charles Charlie Starkweather. Charlie was born in Lincoln, Nebraska on November 24, 1938 to Guy and Helen Starkweather. Charlie was the third of seven children. The Starkweathers were a respectable working class family with well-behaved children. Guy Starkweather was a quiet man who worked as a carpenter when his rheumatoid arthritis would allow. He was sometimes unemployed because of the pain in his hands. When that would happen, Mrs. Starkweather would supplement the family's income by taking waitressing jobs. Now, Charlie had some disadvantages from the get-go. He suffered from genuverum, which we would call being bow-legged. Babies are all kind of born bow-legged because of being scrunched up in the womb, but it usually goes away by the age of two. Charlie's didn't though, and a mild form of it persisted as he grew. He also had a speech impediment and was, according to his teachers, underperforming at school. We all know how awful other children can be and Charlie was teased for his misshapen legs and the speech problems. Turns out though, when he got into his teens, they found out he was not underperforming. He actually had severe myopia that seriously impacted his vision. So despite the strikes against him, Charlie found something that he was really good at. That was Jim. In Jim, he found a way to work out all the anger he felt towards those who were bullying him. Now this might sound like a good thing, like he found a healthy outlet for the feelings he had. Unfortunately, he was a little too good at it, this physical expression. He ended up bulking up and then used this new physical strength to become the bully and pay back those who were bullying him. To be honest, I kind of feel like part of me thinks the bullies had it coming. Problem is, the line sort of blurred and then disappeared for Charlie. He started turning that rage on anyone that he decided he didn't like. Charlie went from generally being considered a well-behaved teenager to a seriously troubled one. 
A former high school friend of his, Bob Von Bush, said later, quote, he could be the kindest person you've ever seen. He'd do anything for you if he liked you. He was a hell of a lot of fun to be around too. Everything was just one big joke to him, but he had this other side. He could be mean as hell, cruel. If he saw some poor guy on the street who was bigger than he was, better looking or better dressed, he'd try to take the poor bastard down to his size, end quote. Charlie sees the film Rebel Without a Cause and develops a fixation on James Dean. He starts doing his hair the same way and begins to dress like Dean. He probably related to Dean's rebellious on-screen personality. At the same time, Charlie develops an intense inferiority complex and his morals, if he had any by this time, went out the window. Charlie was convinced that he couldn't do a damn thing right and that he was going to live a miserable life because of his failings. Enter stage right, Carol Ann Fugate. In 1956, an 18-year-old Charlie is introduced to Carol Ann Fugate, who is just 13 years old. The attraction must have been immediate because Charlie drops out of Lincoln High School while in his senior year to take a job at a Western Union newspaper warehouse. And why did he do that? Because it was near Whittier Junior High School where Carol was going to school. He could now visit her every day after school. I don't need to point out just how truly icky I find this. This is a grown man and this is a girl in middle school. We probably all feel that way. So he doesn't keep this job for very long because he's not a good employee, not by a long shot. He would have to be told to do something multiple times and his employer perceived him as, quote, the dumbest man we had. I'm sure that didn't do a whole lot to help with Charlie's inferiority complex. So Charlie also ended up getting on the outs with his own father. Charlie had taught Carol how to drive, and she goes and crashes the 1949 Ford into another car. Guy Starkweather has to pay for the damages, because even though Charlie uses the car, it legally belongs to Guy. This episode caused a fight between father and son, and it ended with Guy kicking Charlie out of the house. Charlie quits the job at the warehouse, not that I think he would have kept it for that much longer, probably would have been fired, but he quits and he goes to work as a garbage collector. Now, th this situation, being a garbage collector, cemented his nihilistic view on life and confirmed his suspicion that he was indeed going to live a miserable life. While on this garbage collection route, he started planning bank robberies and came up with this philosophy on how he was going to live his life. That philosophy was this, dead people are all on the same level. On November 30th, 1957, Charlie goes to a gas station in Lincoln. He wants to buy a stuffed dog for Carol on credit. Robert Colvert, the station attendant, refused to accept credit and Charlie left more than a little pissed off. At 3 a.m. on December 1st, Charlie returns to the station with a 12-gauge shotgun. At first, he leaves the shotgun in the car, goes inside, and buys some cigarettes from Culvert. Then he leaves, but he doesn't go far before he turns around. He goes back in, once again leaving the gun in the car, and buys himself a pack of gum, and then leaves and drives away a second time. 
He parks the car somewhere away from the station, puts on a red bandana and a hat, and takes the shotgun and a canvas bag and goes back to the station. He holds Colvert at gunpoint, gets 100 bucks from the register, and then forces Colvert to go back to the car with him. Charlie drives Colvert to a remote area and makes him get out of the car. Colvert then tries to get the shotgun from Charlie and they struggle over it. During this battle over the shotgun, it goes off and Culvert is shot in the kneecaps. Charlie then cold-bloodedly shoots Culvert in the head and kills him. Charlie immediately tells Carol about the robbery, but also claims that someone else killed Culvert. Carol doesn't believe him though. A month and a half later, on January 21st, 1958, Charlie goes to see Carol at her home in the Belmont neighborhood that she lived in. She wasn't there, but her mother and stepfather were. Veld and Marion Bartlett told Charlie to stay away from their daughter. Charlie didn't like being told that. What does he do in response? He fatally shoots the Bartlett and then stabs their two-year-old daughter, Betty Jean, to death. Carol returns home and Charlie tells her what he's done. So of course she runs screaming from the house and gets police. Actually, no she doesn't. She helps him hide the bodies in different spots around the house and then puts a note on the door to other family members or anyone that would come to the door that says, stay away, everybody is sick with the flu. And then she signs her mother Velda's name to the note. For six days, these two stay in the house with the bodies. But Carol's grandmother is not taking the whole stay away, we've got the flu thing very well. She contacts the Lincoln Police Department and on January 27th, they go to the house. Unfortunately, Charlie and Carol are gone. Charlie and Carol drove to 77-year-old August Myers Farm in Bennett, Nebraska. Myers was a family friend of the Fugate family. Charlie promptly shot August in the head with the shotgun. Then they fled the area, but as they were trying to get away, they got their vehicle stuck in the mud and had to abandon the car. Two local teenagers, Robert Jensen and Carol King, stopped to give the two a ride. In payment of this kindness, Charlie forced the two Good Samaritans to drive them to an abandoned storm shelter where they were then shot and killed. Charlie and Carol then stole Jensen's vehicle and fled the Bennett area. They drove to a wealthy section of Lincoln where they broke into the home of C. Lauer and Clara Ward. The two people home were the maid Lillian and Clara. They were both stabbed to death. When Lauer returns home that evening, Charlie shot him. Charlie and Carol loaded Lauer's 56 Packard with jewelry from the home and fled Nebraska. The murders in Lancaster County caused quite a to-do and all of the law enforcement branches in the area went on a house-to-house -house search for the killers. The governor of Nebraska contacted the National Guard while the Lincoln, Nebraska chief of police demanded a block-by-block -block search of the city. There were quite a few sightings of the two reported, but those doing the searching were coming up empty-handed. This resulted in charges of incompetence aimed at the Lincoln Police Department. Meanwhile, Charlie and Carol decided they needed to ditch the distinctive Packard because it was much too easy to spot. They found a traveling salesman by the name of Merle Collison sleeping in his Buick on the highway outside of Douglas, Wyoming. They woke him up and Charlie shot him. But the killer couple hit a snag. The Buick had a push pedal emergency brake and Charlie wasn't familiar with it. He tried to drive the car away from the scene, but it stalled. 
He attempted to restart the engine, and while he was doing that, a passing motorist stopped to help the couple. Charlie thanks him by threatening him with a gun. The two men get into a fight, and while they are going at it, a deputy sheriff appears. Carol runs at the deputy, basically saying, It's Starkweather. He's going to kill me. Charlie made an effort to get away from the police, but then for some unknown reason, he just stops, turns around, and surrenders. Apparently, Charlie gets injured in this scuffle that he's had with this motorist. So the Converse County Sheriff Earl Heflin says that he thinks that Charlie thought he was bleeding to death, and that's why he just gave up and let them catch him. In Heflin's words, that's the kind of yellow son of a bitch he is. Now let's talk about after they've been caught. Get this. Charlie at first says that Carol captured him, and he had nothing at all to do with the murders. But as ridiculous as that is, he went ahead and changed his story a few more times. When he finally testified at Carol's trial, Charlie says that she was a willing participant. But I don't see where he claimed that she was the instigator, as he initially did. For posterity, I want to tell you a couple of other things Charlie said. When talking about the murders of Jensen and King, the two teenagers, Charlie claimed that he killed Jensen and Carol killed King. And he also claimed that when he went to the Ward residence, he threw a knife at Ward, but all of the multiple stab wounds on Lily and the housekeeper were done by Carol. When it comes to Merle Collison's death, Starkweather claimed his gun jammed and Carol actually killed a man. He also said that Carol was the most trigger-happy person he'd ever met. For Carol's part, at her trial, she claimed that she was a hostage and that the reason she went with him was because she said Charlie threatened to kill her family if she didn't. She proclaimed that she had no idea her family was already dead. Judge Harry Spencer, who was presiding over the trial, didn't believe it for a single minute. He knew 100% that she was well aware that her family was dead. And he also did not believe that she was a hostage. He pointed out that she had multiple opportunities to get away from Charlie, but never did. Charlie was only tried for the murder of Robert Jensen, and he received the death penalty for that crime. Carol Fugate was sentenced to life on November 21st, 1958. And get this, her sentence was eventually commuted, and she was paroled in June of 1976. She moved to Lansing, Michigan, changed her name, and worked as a janitor at a local hospital. Charlie was executed at 12.01 a.m. in the electric chair at the Nebraska State Penitentiary in Lincoln, Nebraska on June 25, 1959. In case you're interested, these two inspired the movie Natural Born Killers. There's a lot more you could dive into when talking about these two, so have at it. We are moving on to our next killer kid. Here's one from the Wayback Machine, Jesse Pomeroy, a.k.a. The Boy Fiend. Born in 1859, Jesse grew up in a slum in South Boston. By the time he got to be 14 years old, he found himself convicted of multiple murders. Not a life goal, I hope, for most teenagers. There isn't much info on his early childhood, but by the tender age of 11, Jesse had a hobby. That hobby was torturing other kids. 
Between 1871 and 1872, Jesse trapped and attacked seven boys, all of whom were younger than him. He had a pattern and what he did varied. He always took each boy to a secluded place and tied them up. Usually, he made them strip. The first few victims were terribly beaten and kicked. Later, he began using a knife to slash and poke at them. Apparently, it wasn't too hard for the police to figure out who was doing this, and they arrested him when he was just 12 years old. He was sent to the Westboro Reform School where he was supposed to stay until he was 21. While at the reform school, he was being a good boy, and it only took two years for him to convince the powers that be that he was reformed. Sounds a little bit like Ed Kemper. They let Jesse out. Big mistake. Instead of being reformed, he now had it in his head that he needed to up his game. Beatings were in the past. He wanted to kill. In March of 1874, Mary Curran, 10 years old, disappeared. Just a month later, Four-year-old Horace Mullen was snatched by Jesse and taken to a marshland outside of town. The little boy's body was found slashed repeatedly, and he had also been nearly decapitated. Police are looking for a suspect, and guess who pops into their heads? Jesse Pomeroy. They go to see Jesse and find him carrying a bloodstained knife and muddy shoes that just so happened to match ones at the Mullen crime scene. When the police ask him if he killed Horace, his reply is... I suppose I did. But it doesn't end there, because Jesse goes on to claim he's killed 27 others. They dig up in and around the home he lived in, and they find the remains of 12 other bodies, including the body of Mary Curran, who had been savagely beaten and mutilated. That makes a confirmed total of 14. No surprise, Jesse is convicted and originally sentenced to death. But Governor William Gaston had a problem putting a 14-year-old to death. The only way to spare Jesse's life was through the governor's council, and they needed a simple majority to do it. For the next year and a half, the nine-person council voted on Jesse's sentence. The first two times the death sentence was upheld, but the governor refused to sign it. On the third vote, they unanimously voted on a life sentence, but not just in prison, in solitary confinement. He spent 41 years in solitary before he had any contact with the other prisoners. He died in 1932 at the age of 72. Our third scary kid is the slasher of Warwick, Craig Chandler Price, who has the distinction of being the youngest serial killer in U.S. history. Not something to be proud of, but there it is. In 1987, at the age of 13, Craig had been peeping at his 27-year-old neighbor, Rebecca Spencer. One day, he decides peeping isn't enough. He breaks in and stabs her 58 times with one of her own kitchen knives. The murder goes unsolved. Two years later, he kills Joan Heaton, 39, and her two daughters, Jennifer and Melissa, ages 10 and 8. The slash marks on this second crime are so similar to the murder of Rebecca Spencer that the FBI is brought in to work up a profile on what they suspect is a serial killer. The FBI fails to come up with a profile for a 15-year-old black male. It was actually the observation of a detective that brought attention to Craig. This detective noted a large cut on Craig's hand. They bring him in for questioning. Now I suppose you're thinking it took hours or days to break Craig. Well, you would be wrong. 
He, without any prompting, admitted to all four murders. This was one month before his 16th birthday. He was tried and convicted as a minor, but that meant he'd get out at 21 and his records would be sealed. As a result of this, Craig bragged that he would, quote, make history when he was released. It was this case that led to changes in state laws that would allow a minor to be tried as an adult for serious crimes. Sadly, they couldn't retroactively apply it to Craig. But since he is not a model prisoner by any means and continually commits assaults in prison, he's given another 10 to 25 years. He was denied parole in March of 2009, and guess what? His release date was set for May of 2020. Would you like to know if he got out? According to the state of Florida inmate population records, his current release date is August 14th, 2044, with a note that release date is subject to change pending gain time award, gain time forfeiture, or review. So I was wondering how it went from 2020 to 2044. So I scrolled through his prison sentence history, and there have been four battery charges since his denial of parole in 2009. And then in April of 2017, it shows first-degree murder slash premeditated or attempted. So I'm guessing he's going to be there for a bit longer. That's good. Let us leave the U.S. and talk about our fourth and final killer kid of this episode. Mary Flora Bell was 11 years old when she killed two little boys in 1968. Mary was born on May 26th of 1957. Her mother, Betty, was either 16 or 17, I found differing accounts, when Mary was born. Betty wasn't married at the time and was considered mentally unstable. She did end up marrying Billy Bell, who may or may not have actually been Mary's father. But he wasn't exactly good dad material. He was repeatedly out of work and had a habit of getting into trouble with the law for things like armed robbery. Some family members say that Betty had at one point attempted to kill Mary and make it look like an accident. According to some of them, she had done that several times. Mary herself says that she was sexually assaulted while she was growing up and that her mother forced her to participate in sex acts with men from the age of five. She was living in the Scottswood area of Newcastle, and this area had a reputation for criminal behavior. Prior to stepping up to murder, Mary committed other crimes like vandalism and theft and even attacking other kids at school. But because of the area she lived in, where this kind of thing wasn't at all uncommon, she didn't draw any real attention from authorities. It seems she'd also built herself a reputation for being a show-off, which explains why when she at one point says she's a murderer, no one takes her seriously. On May 11, 1968, Mary and her friend Norma Bell, who has the same last name but isn't in any way related, were playing with a three-year-old boy on top of an air raid shelter in Newcastle. The boy fell off and was seriously hurt, but the incident was determined to be an accident. The next day, the moms of three young girls contact police and claim that Mary Bell attacked their daughters, and tried to choke them. The police talked to Mary, gave her a lecture, and sent her on her way. On May 25th, two boys playing in an abandoned house find the corpse of Martin Brown, who was just four years old at the time of his death. 
Mary and her friend Norma followed the boys inside and didn't want to leave. The cops had to basically chase them out. There wasn't any obvious cause of death, so because of a discarded pill bottle nearby, the police decided the boy had taken the pills and that caused his death. The very next day, May 26th, Norma's father finds Mary choking his 11-year-old daughter. Supposedly, these girls were friends. Nice way to treat your friends, right? The father slapped Mary across the face and tells her to go home. Later that same day, police discover that a local nursery school has been vandalized. There were some pretty nasty notes left there written in childish writing, misspelled, but vulgar. Lots of F-words and things like, we did murder Martin Brown. Four days after that, Mary Bell turns up at the Brown residence asking to see Martin. The grieving mother of Martin tells her that the boy is dead. Mary's response is, oh, I know he's dead. I wanted to see him in his coffin. A couple of days later, on May 31st, the nursery school that had been vandalized is hit again. This time, a burglar alarm, which had been installed after the previous break-in, alerts police. When they get there, Mary and Norma are just lurking about, then insist that they had nothing to do with the break-in. They're questioned and then released to their parents. Mary's been pretty busy, but for the next two months, things seem quiet until three-year-old Brian Howe goes missing from Newcastle. Immediately, a search is started. Mary tells Brian's sister that maybe Brian is playing on, a, on some piles of concrete blocks in a nearby vacant lot. Turns out that is exactly where he is. Brian's lifeless body is among the slabs of broken concrete. He'd been manually strangulated and his legs and stomach had been mutilated with a razor and a pair of scissors recovered at the same location. The medical examiner, after looking at Brian's body, has the idea that a child might be the killer that they're looking for. There was little force indicated in the wounds and in the manual strangulation. Detectives then hand out questionnaires to the local kids, asking them to account for their whereabouts at the time Brian was killed. Mary and Norma don't do a very good job at this. Their stories are inconsistent, and that ends up with both girls being brought in for questioning. Initially, Mary says she saw Norma do something to Brian. But meanwhile, Norma cracks and tells the police that she saw Mary kill Brian. In December of 1968, at trial, Norma is acquitted of all charges, but Mary is convicted on two counts of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished capacity. Court psychiatrists use the words intelligent, manipulative, and dangerous to describe Mary Bell, who, keep in mind, was 10 when she killed Martin Brown and 11 when she killed Brian. Mary is sent to prison, but she doesn't make any attempt to change her ways. In 1970, she makes up a story that one of the prison warders assaulted her. He ends up being acquitted. In September of 77, she, along with another inmate, escapes from the Moore Court open prison. They're captured three days later. And after just 12 years, at the age of 23, Mary was released. She was granted a new name and four years later had a daughter who had no idea what her mother had done, until some reporters found out where Mary was and tracked her down. 
Mary's daughter was given anonymity until the age of 18, but on May 21, 2003, the High Court extended both Mary and her daughter anonymity for life. As a side note, a court order that permanently protects the identity of someone is known as a Mary Bell order. And that will do it for part one of Kids You Shouldn't Turn Your Back On. Hang tight for the final crumb. In the meantime, you can follow me on Instagram at Crime Biscuit or on Facebook, Crime Biscuit, a true crime podcast. Or you can send me a Gmail at acrimebiscuit at gmail.com. Here's your final crumb. 99.9% of the time, if you see a little kid with red on his clothes, it's probably finger paint. But if there is any doubt in your mind, don't turn your back on him. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.